Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 29, originally recorded live on September 16, 2011. Jewish culture is comprised of Jewish music, art, literature, and movie. But what makes a movie, or any artistic expression, Jewish? In this episode, Rabbi Shalom discusses this as part of our upcoming series of discussions on Jewish movies. For more information about Kol Hadash, please visit our website, kolhadash.com. And while you are there, please consider making a donation to support this podcast. When you ask the question, just what is a Jewish movie? Sometimes you have to go about it the other way around. Instead of defining categories and criteria, maybe you list some examples. Well, this, I, I know this is a Jewish movie. And one of the first examples that would come to mind is the film Fiddler on the Moon. Right? It's a Jewish movie. It's based on Yiddish short stories written by a Jewish writer named Sholem Aleichem. It's focused on Jewish life and experience in Eastern Europe. There are so many references to Jewish religion and Jewish custom and Yiddish sayings and the Jewish wedding. The major actors in this are well-known Jewish actors, even in Jewish languages. Topol is an Israeli actor who plays Tevya. And you may not have known it, but the character Yenta in the movie is played by Molly Pekan, who was one of the giants of the Yiddish stage and screen. The audiences who love the movie and come back again and again have lots and lots of Jews in them. And you can even argue that Fiddler on the Roof has had a lasting impact on Jewish culture. I have a theory that the reason everyone gets picked up on a chair at a wedding is not because their parents did it or their grandparents did it, but because they saw it in Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) That's tradition. Now, there is an old Jewish tradition going back many centuries of argument for argument's sake. There's a passage in the Talmud that says, the student who can come up with a hundred reasons why a creepy crawly insect is in fact kosher should be praised. Even though, by definition, by the clear terms of the Torah, that creepy crawly insect is not kosher, nevertheless, we can come up with hundreds and arguments upon arguments to prove that it is, that kind of reasoning is worthwhile, or at least useful. This is also sometimes called pill-pool, which means hair-splitting, just to make the point for the point's sake. Well, in that tradition, I want to offer you six arguments why Fiddler on the Roof is not a Jewish movie. The first is the director. The closest thing a film has to an author, his name is Norman Jewison, but he's not Jewish. Everyone thinks he's Jewish. His last name would seem to indicate that he is a Jewish son, but in fact, he is not Jewish. Argument number two. Not all of the actors, not all of the writers, I'll bet you not even all of the agents involved in the movie were Jewish. And so if it isn't all Jewish, it's a mix. Why? How can you claim it as a Jewish movie when in fact it's a human movie? Third argument. Now let's say you decide to make the claim that the movie itself is a kind of Jewish invention. Right? The Jews went west when Thomas Edison wouldn't let them into the guilds, and they created this new place called Hollywood in Southern California because they could film outside most of the year with the sunlight. 
and they built this industry called Hollywood. Well, if you claim that the studio heads are Jewish, Hollywood is Jewish, it comes from Jewish creativity, well, at that point you've made the claim that all films are Jewish, so what's the point of calling this film Jewish and not Godspell or Jesus Christ Superstar or anything else? Or even Passion of the Christ? Well, is all choral music Catholic? <laughs> of course not. Nevertheless, it's an argument one could make. Now, a fourth argument to make is that when you look at the audience for Fiddler on the Roof, either a stage revival or in a film revival or in the original film in the theaters, it obviously wasn't only Jews. No one was checking tickets at the door like the high holidays <laughs> to get in to see Fiddler on the Roof. So the audience was global. I mean, the, the theater production traveled globally. It didn't only play in New York City and Los Angeles and parts of Chicago. It's not only aimed at a Jewish audience, so how is it a Jewish movie? And some might argue, this is argument number five, you want to call this movie thing Jewish culture? Jewish culture is now what Jewish culture has been for centuries. It's arguing about the Torah, it's discussing the Talmud, it's the Haggadah. A movie? It's shown on Shabbat. There's sex and mixed gender dancing and intermarriage that's almost accepted at the end of the movie. How can that count as really Jewish when it doesn't conform to Jewish values, as I've defined them? It's like serving matzo balls in split pea and ham soup. It just doesn't work. Now, the sixth of It's not in a Jewish language. I mean, Shalom Aleichem wrote in Yiddish. It was a Jewish language. Topol, the actor, acted in Hebrew, a Jewish language. Could you do French literature not in French? Maybe it's an American movie. Maybe it's an English language movie. How do you define an ethnic movie? Is Rocky or The Godfather an Italian movie? Why claim it is Jewish? Okay. Now, you understand I was on the debate team in college, in addition to being a rep. So I know how to make an argument for argument's sake. I hope I didn't convince you with anything. <laughs> but they're interesting to explore because what it does is it asks important questions about how we do define what is Jewish and what's not. I would still happily call Fiddler on the Roof a Jewish movie for many reasons, not the least of which is the fact that Jews themselves consider it a Jewish movie. And there's something to be said for the self-definition of cultural content. But you can see how these questions of what makes a Jewish movie could apply more broadly to what makes a Jewish book, what makes Jewish music, what counts as Jewish culture? In the end, what is Jewish? Or even more personally, how are you Jewish? What do you do that's Jewish? We say in humanistic Judaism that we celebrate Jewish culture, but we have to have some sense of what is Jewish culture. Because if everything Jews have ever done is Jewish culture, to my mind, that's too much. I mean, Einstein's mathematics, can that just be human mathematics? Does it have to be Jewish mathematics? And it begins to sound vaguely Nazi. That if a Jew did it, then it's Jewish. Well, maybe we can be humans too. But at the same time, 
we want to be able to claim more broadly Jewish culture and not be limited to the Talmud and its commentaries. For some, that's enough for Jewish culture, but for us, we want more, we deserve more, and we celebrate more, we enjoy more. So here are some answers to those arguments. The director's not Jewish, the writer's not Jewish, the agents weren't Jewish. Okay. Non-Jews can create culture that's accepted as Jewish. I'll give you an example. There's a very famous cello and orchestra arrangement of the song Kol Nidre from Yom Kippur. It's beautiful. It was written by Max Christian Friedrich Bruch, a German Protestant. Interestingly enough, the Nazis thought that he might have had a Jewish ancestor because he wrote this beautiful Kol Nidre piece, and so they wouldn't play any of his music even though he had no Jewish ancestry and himself was Protestant. But he created this powerfully beautiful element that today feels like a Jewish experience when you see it and when you hear it. And the second point to understand is it's not all or nothing. A movie is a collaboration of many pieces. You've got the original story, you've got the writer who turns it into a screenplay, and then the writer who rewrites what the writer wrote for the screenplay, You've got the editors, you've got the producers, you've got the audience, you've got the director. Now sometimes the director brings his sensibilities to the job, and it helps to give it a Jewish flavor. You remember the film When Harry Met Sally? Everyone's convinced that Harry is Jewish. But there's nothing in the movie that indicates that he is. Even when they eat at Katz's Deli, in that very famous scene, there's nothing that indicates that he's Jewish. But the director, Rob Reiner, was. And in fact, his mother is the woman in the scene who says, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> now, the third argument was that you're claiming movies as a Jewish genre, or you're claiming everything. What's the point? But well, we don't do that. But we have to understand that even historic Jewish genres are not unique to Jews anymore. There are non-Jews who break glasses at weddings because they liked the idea. By the way, the Bible was redone. <laughs> it's called the New Testament, right? <laughs> they liked the idea, they made their own. Seders today happen in churches all the time. You've heard of the faux mitzvah? This is the non-Jewish 13-year-old that gets a big party. <laughs> now, in the case of this movie, it's clearly Jewish because the characters are Jewish, the content is Jewish, the focus is what it means to be Jewish. So it's not just a function of who doesn't. It's what it is that helps to define Jewish culture. Now the fourth, the fourth objection was that the audience wasn't only Jews, it was aimed at the world. It's a piece of human culture because it's not only aimed at Jews. Yiddish literature was written for Jews because they were the only ones reading it. But the truth is, that Fiddler on the Roof is one of the joys of the multicultural experience. You know, Jews aren't the only ones with guilt. Okay. They aren't the only ones with mothers that say, eat, eat, or you don't love me. <laughs> it applies to many, many ethnic cultures. And so, you know, there's a reason why my big fat Greek wedding was a success. Because we all know people like those characters in that movie. <laughs> and particularly the old world and the new world. There's a reason why it was a success. Think about the jazz singer. The jazz singer was the first talking movie. 
And what is the story? A boy doesn't want to be a cantor like his father, and so he becomes a singer on the stage, but he's pulled back by the haunting melody of Kol Nidre. And then he wants to marry this beautiful, blonde, implication Nanju. But his mama needs him to come home to sing the Kol Nidre. And it's opening night. What is he going to do? This is a very Jewish story. Why? Why, why did the Warner Brothers, all Jewish, choose this story as the first talking movie when it had to literally play in Peoria? And the answer was, the story of old world versus new, past versus present, the parents' generation versus the young generation, jazz versus tradition. That was a universal story. That's the joy of multiculturalism, you see. Jewish culture can be enjoyed by others. After all, if an audience defined the ethnic quality of something, we wouldn't be calling it Chinese food anymore. <laughs> now, the fifth argument was, how can you call it Jewish culture when it isn't what Jews have always done? It doesn't look like what Jews do. Well, the truth is that living cultures are always creative. They're always creating new forms. In fact, even the Seder itself was an innovation because the original Passover was animal sacrifice at a temple in Jerusalem. And thank goodness we let that go when the temple was destroyed. Instead, we came up with a reenactment of a special meal. And the reclining at the meal wasn't part of the original Four Questions, wasn't part of the original Seder. It was added in imitation of a Roman feast. And on, and on, and on. Now, Jewish values have a wide range of articulations, some wonderful and universal, some parochial and objectionable. But the most important response to this argument is, who are you, you arguer, to tell me how I define my Judaism? Tell me what I do isn't Jewish. That's like saying that Reformed Judaism isn't Jewish because it doesn't follow halakha, religious law. It's like saying that Conservative Judaism isn't Judaism because they have women rabbis. Well, it's one more argument in the same genre of you're not what I want you to be. And our best answer to that is, I am who I need to be, for me. I'm not answerable to you. There is no Jewish Pope, even you. And the sixth challenge, Jewish language, Jewish idiom and setting. How do you define an ethnic movement? It's an important challenge. It goes back to the history of secular Judaism. Because 100 years ago, there were two options for being a secular Jew. And they were both based on language. One was to be a Yiddishist and to say that the language of the masses, the Yiddish spoken in everyday homes, was in fact a national language around which a culture and a secular identity could be built. And the other was to say that the Jewish people needed a national home. The way to be a secular Jew was to live in a sea of Judaism and Jewishness. And so to do that, you needed to live it in Hebrew and to be in a Jewish state. This is the Zionist movement. And even after the founding of the State of Israel, we had arguments between secular Jews here and secular Jews there, where the secular Jews in Israel would say, I understand that you're secular philosophically, but it's just not going to last unless you're doing it in a Jewish language, because of the resonance, because of the depth. Culture lives in language, and you're swimming in a sea of English. Well, if you think about French literature, not as French language literature, but as the literature of the French people, of meditations on what it means to be French, then even David Sedaris's Me Speak Pretty One Day is a kind of French literature. 
where he's exploring what it means to be an American in Paris. Or you could ask the question about Irish literature. After all, there is an ancestral Irish language. It's called Gaelic. Today it's spoken as a first language by maybe 20% of the Irish people, not counting the ones in America. So if you want to define it by language, Irish literature is teeny. You define it by the people. You define it by their experience. What they choose to call Irish, then it's broad and creative and wonderful. Now these are all important factors in creating and defining Jewish culture. Who the author is, who the audience is, what's the content, who are the characters, what are some of the themes, what are the values represented, how is it received by Jews, what effects has it had on Jews in the real world. So I want to share with you some of the films we'll be exploring this year. This year, over the course of Shabbat and adult education programs and other opportunities, we'll be exploring Jewish culture through the medium a film. In a way, it's a kind of Jewish film literacy to see that you've seen the biggies, or at least what I think are the biggies, because of course every top ten list has a counter top ten list. So I want to share with you some of the films that have been nominated so far. We may not get to all of them over the course of the year, but I'm also curious for your suggestions of movies that might be interesting to explore in a discussion format. The nice thing about Netflix and Blockbuster and all the availability out there is they don't have to be new for everyone to see it. The first film we'll be talking about next month is an Israeli film called Ushbizin. Ushbizin is the word for the mystical guests who are imagined to be present in the sukkah. Moses and Abraham and David and so on. Well, in this story, an Israeli couple has unexpected and perhaps unwelcome guests who appear in their sukkah. But the obligation is to be generous and to host them, so what are they supposed to do? They bring back a past that would rather be forgotten. The most interesting part of this film is it was made with ultra-Orthodox actors who generally are not part of the film world in Israel. And so it's an articulation as well of a dynamic in Israel between the most Orthodox, who represent a small percent of the population, but have an uh, outsized influence on the society, versus the secular audience that consumes the movie that they're producing. In November, we will turn to Fiddler on the Roof and explore that as a cultural document of time it was made and what impact it's had since. We may also look at the book, at the uh, movie Exodus, originally a book by Leon Uris, uh, the movie itself with Paul Newman as the Jewish hero, <laughs> uh, blonde and blue-eyed, but uh, his name is Ari ben Canaan, lion son of Canaan, what a great way to stake your claim to the land. There's the original jazz singer, probably not the Neil Diamond version, but the original jazz singer and its status as a foundational document of Jewish film. A marvelous film done about 15 years ago called A Price Above Rubies. Not to be seen with kids, but definitely to be seen. A Price Above Rubies? I think it's A Price Above Rubies. Um, it's, it comes from a line in the book of Proverbs uh, praising the woman of valor. It's been translated a couple of different ways. Uh, it actually, that text actually appears in the film in a very disturbing uh, section. Um, but it's a marvelous film with a non-Jewish actress, Renee Zellweger, in the lead role, but doing a fantastic job exploring the phenomenon of an ultra-Orthodox woman who just doesn't believe it anymore and can't mouth the words and has to leave and what that means. Um, most of the cast was not Jewish, I understand. Interesting. There's also a film that came out in 1940 called The Great Dictator. It was Charlie Chaplin's first speaking role. He'd always been the tramp and lived in silent film, but he made this film where he plays both 
and Adolf Hitler stand in, and a Jewish Bible. And he himself wasn't Jewish, even though many people assumed he was. And then, the last two I have on my list are films that ironically have opposite titles, even though they're not related to each other. The first one is called Funny Girl, the Fanny Bryce slash Barbara Streisand story, and its opposite, the opposite of Funny Girl, A Serious Man. <laughs> I don't know if they have anything to do with each other. <laughs> but uh, it's another film recently that explores Jewish identity and theological questions. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.